Well, good morning, Door Creek. It's good to see you all this morning. If you're a guest, welcome. My name's Mark, one of the pastors. We're really glad that you could join us. Our desire is to be a Christ-centered church for all people. So wherever you're at in your journey is a good place for you. We're glad you're here. So James starts out chapter 4 with a question. It seems pretty straightforward. We may have the, the answer in our minds. And he, he asks the question in verse 1, what causes the fighting and the quarreling among you? And at first, we're, we're, we're thinking he's asking the question, so what do we fight about? Like, what did you fight about this week? Anybody get in a fight on the way to church? Like, it even happens to pastors' families. Yeah, it happens. So we think the question is, so what, what are we fighting about? But actually, he's asking a prior question, the really important question is, why? Why do you fight? What is driving that? So if I asked you to raise your hand if you've ever had a relationship where there was some friction or you're in one now, I get it, like we all raise our hands. So this is a hard word that's meant to be a good word. And one of the things this good word is going to do is move us from what do we fight about to why? What drives that? So let me give you an illustration of how we can get it right and get it confused. So when Lori and I were first married, uh, we, we bought a house, great little house, emphasis on little, two bedrooms, 850 square feet, but it was awesome. And then Laura comes along, and then Bridget comes along, and we're going, wow, it's a really little house, and maybe it would be helpful to finish out the basement. And so I got my tool belt on and got some friends to help and put in a family room, put in a bedroom, put in a new bath, and we were like, this is awesome. We got all this space upstairs, downstairs. And then the next summer, we were away. Lori was up in Minnesota visiting family, and I was on a mission trip at his mansion in Hillsboro, New Hampshire, for two weeks with high school kids. And during that time when we were both away, Wheaton, where we lived, Wheaton, Illinois, Western Suburbs, Chicago, experienced what they called a 100-year flood. We found out that about every six years, Wheaton had the 100-year flood. <laughs> so there was so much rain that they were jet skiing, no lie, they were jet skiing down Main Street. And if they're jet skiing down Main Street, it wouldn't surprise you if I told you, and there were three feet of water in our new finished basement. So grateful for John and Diane, our neighbors who knew the problem and went in. And before I even got back, they pumped out all the water. But it, it was a lot of damage by the time I got there. We thought, man, we got this new family room. And so let's move all this stuff like yearbooks from high school, the stuff from college, our honeymoon pictures, all gone. It was so depressing. If you don't know this, and if you've got a, a student in high school or middle school, just remember this. When, when the leaders come back, they're wiped out. That's from a weekend. A week, you're more wiped out. Two weeks, I was, I was done. And Lori's not there, and I'm just trying to dig through it all, throwing it out, taking all the winter stuff that we had downstairs, and literally covering the backyard just to get it dried out. I'm calling Lori, and I'm telling her all the things that we've lost. And she keeps saying, oh, honey, that's okay. That's okay. I mean, interiorly, she's going, you're kidding. That too? That too? But she's like protecting me from a deep dive into dark depression, right? And so that night, it started to rain again. I'm going, oh, my word. And the basement started to flood. 
We didn't have a sump pump. And so literally the pressure, the water table was so high that it was just working its way through the cracks. So you see cracks in the floor. Yeah, the water was coming up. And then I walked back where the bathroom was and I noticed to my horror, like this is like this geyser, like Old Faithful had refound itself in my toilet bowl and all this water was coming out. It's not what you're thinking. It was clean. But anyways, (laughs) it was terrible. I'm going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I've got to stop that. And so I did the logical thing in my mind is I turned off the supply to the water. Now there's a bunch of bright people that go, that's not gonna help anything. Because I didn't have a water line problem. I had a sewer line problem. And the storm sewer was hooked up to my house's pipes and it was all mixed up and it was all coming back in. And it didn't matter how tight I had closed it, we had a bigger problem. Now intuitively, we know that. When there's a leak and there's a puddle that we know, I got to get that puddle cleaned up, but I got to find out where did that come from? Is there a leaky pipe up here? Did the pipes freeze? Is there like that bursting of the, the hose on the, on the washing machine? Did the, did the ice cube maker line go out? I got to get back to it. But what's really interesting is when it comes to relationships, we spend a lot of time focusing on puddles. And we wonder, why can't, why can't that thing go away? Why can't we get through this? James is going to help us move from the puddles of our conflict in relationships to the source of it. So grab your Bible. We're in James chapter 4. He's going to give us the problem of these fights. He's going to help us understand and diagnose it, the symptoms. He's going to give us the cure, and he's going to help us understand those who've taken the cure, who are the cure. So we begin with the problem in verses 1 through 6. What causes fights and quarrels among you, James asks? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So he says there's a problem here, and it's going on in the church, God's people who have his spirit. He said, the problem is you guys are getting into fights. You're quarreling. You're at each other's throats. That could be people within the church. It could be people whose relationships are found both in the church and the relationships they have in a marriage, the relationship in their family. Maybe they work together, things like that. He's given us some reasons why people could be at each other's throats in chapter two. He kind of throws out a hypothetical, but maybe it's really going on where they treated people who had more and were rich better than the people who had less and who were poor. He talked about these people that would have a, you know, this kind of indifference towards people that have need, someone who needed food and clothing, and all we would give them are spiritual platitudes, reasons 
for conflict, the jealousy, the coveting, wanting what other people have, the slandering and judging that he's going to talk about in verses 11 and 12, and the kinds of things that he's going to talk about in verse 6 of chapter 5, where we end this morning, where people are acting unjustly towards other people. A lot of room and reason for fighting. And he's not talking about, and that's what goes on out in the big bad world. He's saying, actually, that shows up right here in church, right here in the family of God. It's nothing new, this kind of conflict. It goes all the way back to the very beginning when Adam and Eve broke ranks, right? And so what happens next? What's the next story? Is their son, Cain, kills their other son, Abel. We think about the conflicts, conflicts like King David had before he was king with King Saul, who tries to take his life. Think about the conflicts and fights that even Jesus' disciples have, right? When they're fighting over, oh, I'm better than you are. I'm greater than you are. Really? Yeah, really. And then we meet up with Yodi and Syntyche in Philippians, the church in Philippi. We don't know why that relationship's all busted up. My experience with building projects is maybe they were on the building committee. They, <laughs> they couldn't agree on the color of the carpeting or something like that. It reminds me of this uh, misprint in the church bulletin. It was great. It went like this. The church will host an evening of fine dining, super entertainment, and gracious hostility. <laughs> so that's the problem. There's hostility, and it wasn't gracious. And if you've ever been in a church fight, it's not funny. It's one of the hardest things to go through. And both churches that I've served, this one in college church, that's part of our history. He says, what's, what's behind that? That's the problem, is we've got conflict. Conflict in our relationships within the church, conflicts in the relationships that come to church, marriages, families, working relationships. Why is that, he says? Well, he starts to answer that in the following verses when he gives this diagnosis. And he talks about three things. He talks about wrong desires, that are connected to these wrong motives that are actually connected to a heart that, that is in love with the wrong thing. It's the wrong friendship. So wrong desires, wrong motives, wrong affections, or wrong friendship, as he calls it here in the text. The wrong desires are these heart desires. And when he talks about what's the leaky faucet, what's the cause of this puddle, what's the cause of conflict, he says it's these warring desires in your heart. And we just pause and he goes, he's talking about a Christian's heart. That within a Christian's heart, we want to be devoted followers of Christ. That's our, our mission here at Door Creek, to join God and seeing people's lives changed by his grace so that they long and grow to become a devoted follower of Christ. And in a devoted follower of Christ's heart, there's these warring factions. There's these God-honoring desires that flow from Christ's spirit that's in us that always wants God's will, God's best. And then there's the complete opposite. Those are our own desires. And those motivations have nothing to do with God's glory, but as we will see, our own pleasure-seeking and our own happiness. So there's these wrong desires that are duking it out inside of us. They are longing to make a case that we would follow in those steps that the desires are leading us to take. 
He's talked about these desires before. It's not the first time we've run into it. Go back to James chapter 1, verse 14. He said, remember at the beginning of that section, when tempted, verse 13, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But, verse 14, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. These are the same desires he's talking about. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. James says when these desires that aren't God-honoring desires are unresolved in our life, we have like this little adult temper tantrum and we start to take it out on other people, people maybe that have what we want. We're coveting these things. We think, man, if I just had those things, I'd be so much happier and I don't have those things. And so I hate that that person has what I really deserve. Or maybe it has nothing to do with that this person has what I want. This just person is in my space and I'm going to make their life miserable because I'm miserable. And we take it out. These unresolved desires lead to these unreconciled relationships. And it's one thing to have these warring desires. But James says if we're not connected to God, then there's no hope for us to ever walk in the way of those desires. He says, you guys have all these desires, but you're not even talking to God about what you want in life and what he wants for your life. You're not talking. And we know when people who were close, like you've got a close relationship, you're married to this person. This is your mother. This is your father. This is your brother. This is your sister. This is your boss. This is your employee. Whatever it is, this is your best friend. When these people aren't talking anymore, that's not a good sign. Agreed? All right. We agree with that. And he's saying, hey, you got these wrong desires. And, and you got these wrong motivations that flow from these desires. And, and one of the things that's going on here is you're not in relationship with God. You're not talking to God. They go, no, 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 we are talking. We pray. He says, well, yeah, but let me talk to you about your prayers. You're trying to manipulate, cajole God for your ends, for your pleasure. That's your motivation. And in this motivation where you're seeking your own pleasure, you're consistently asking the wrong question. And that's why you've got conflict because you're trying to answer the wrong question, which is, what do I want? What do I need? What would make me happy? What would make me happier? He's saying that is a fundamentally flawed question. The right question to ask is, what does God want? What does it mean to please him? And if we're disconnected from God, these warring desires will always win, like the bad ones that don't have the glory of God and our good in view. And so he says, hey, we're fighting with each other because we're not in right relationship with God. And so as you come into this place, you're listening now and you go, man, we've got so much problems in our marriage. James is saying, well, I'm not saying you don't have problems in your marriage, but there's something before that. And if you keep working on your marriage, it may be just like trying to mop up that puddle, but there's a leaky pipe that actually needs addressing. And it's about your heart, and it's about another relationship. 
It's your relationship with God. These wrong desires are leading to these wrong motivations, and you don't have the right affections. Your affection is for the world, and you're a friend of the world. He's not saying you don't have friends. It doesn't mean we don't love all of our neighbors, whether Christ followers or not. He's saying we can't grab onto the world's values and hang on to God's at the same time. They're diametrically opposed. It can't work. It doesn't work. He says, what you're doing here, this friendship with the world, that spiritual adultery, man, James really comes out of the blocks and he's throwing punches all the time. And he's got our attention when he says, actually, you've broken ranks with God. You've been unfaithful to God who loves you and desires this kind of close relationship. You've committed adultery. You fall in love with something else, with yourself, your own desires that all align with the ways of the world, the values of the world. He said you can't be friends of God and friends of the world at the same time. Jesus said you cannot love me and money. You can't do it. So I was thinking about that story that Michael Jordan's book talks about. This is a wild story. And the story has to do with um, this guy named Fred Whitfield. Fred Whitfield was the president and chief operating officer of the team that Michael was the principal owner, the NBA Charlotte Bobcats, now the Hornets. And uh, Fred tells a story about a night that Michael's over at the house and they're getting ready to go to dinner and they need a dinner jacket where they're going and Michael didn't have his with him. and said, Fred, can I borrow one of your dinner jackets? He says, just go back in my closet, take anything you want. So he goes back into the closet and he notices all this Nike apparel. And he's feeling good because, right, he's the poster boy for Nike. He's making a lot of money for Nike. He's got a lot of Nike stock and he knows where he's gotten all that. It's from him. He's feeling good about that. But he's looking around. He says, whoa, what's that stuff? There's a lot of Puma stuff in the closet. He says, I didn't give him any Puma stuff. I know that Ralph Sampson guy's a friend with Fred's. That's probably from Ralph. So Michael grabs all the Puma stuff, and he brings it in the living room. He throws it in the middle of the floor. He walks to the kitchen. Fred's watching this. He comes back with a butcher knife, and he begins to cut all the Puma clothes into shreds. And here's what he says. You go, this isn't true. No, this is true. He says, Fred, don't ever let me see you in anything other than Nike. You can't ride the fence. We're going, that is kind of weird. Now, that's just an intense dude who was making a lot of money from Nike. And he wasn't going to let his president get confused on who butters their bread. And James is saying, don't get confused here. Because it's easy. Like we're here right now. I love God. Man, I, I, he's in my schedule this week. I showed up. But the rest of the week, we're friends with the world. Those values rule our hearts and minds. You see, you can't. You can't do both. Oh, we think, oh, yeah, I'm doing both. He says, no, actually, you're not. You're on the wrong side of the fence, following the wrong desires. What's God's response? It's beautiful. Verse 6 and following, well, verse 5 first tells us he's jealous for his spirit, Right? His spirit that's within us. This is a positive thing about God's love. He's jealous for his spirit, the one that lives within us. That his spirit would be treated 
with fidelity and love and honor and respect. He's jealous for his spirit. And he moves towards us with more grace. Your marriage needs more grace. That friendship that you used to call like a good friendship, a close friendship that's like totally blown up, it needs more grace. That stuff that's going on at work, more grace. With your dad, more grace. With your sibling, more grace. But the grace only comes to those who acknowledge their need for grace. Look at it again in verse 6. Verse six. God opposes the proud. See, that, that, that's a position that says, I'm God, I don't need God, look at me. But he shows favor, he shows grace, same word, to the humble. Those who see themselves rightly before God, loved by God, and yet desperately needing his grace in our lives. So notice in verses 7, well, actually, in 6 there, where he says he gives favor to the humble, and notice how he ends this next section in verse 10, and see if you can see the, the brackets here, the repeated idea. Because he goes on to say, submit yourselves, verse 7, then to God. He's going to start fleshing it out, what it means to be humble before God. We submit ourselves, therefore, to God. We resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. We come near to God and he will come near to you and wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So we're reading through the Bible. Whenever we're doing that, we're looking for these brackets, these bookends. So look at again at the end of verse six. What does he say? God shows favor to who? The humble. All right? What does it say in verse 10? Humble yourselves. Oh, just note that. He didn't say, pray that God would humble you. Don't pray that. Don't pray that. He says, humble yourself. Here's the thing about God. He's never going to put you or me in a full Nelson and say, until you cry uncle, you know, it's, this is what I'm going to do. In his kindness, he's created us not as chatty Cathy dolls where you pull the string and we always say the right thing and do the right thing. He's given us the freedom to love him in response to his grace freely. So he says, he says, you, you want to live a humble life? Because this is the bracket here, right? You see it in 6, and then you see it in 10. Humble yourself. He's saying everything between 6 and 10. When we see those bookends like that, what it's saying is everything between the end of 6 and the end of 10 is all about humbling ourselves before God. And so that's a good question because we go, I know that language, but I'm not sure exactly what does that mean. Well, he fleshes it out. If we humble ourselves before God, it means we continually are submitting ourselves to God. We're resisting the devil's temptation. We're resisting the enemy. And we're drawing near to God. So he unpacks that. First is this idea of submitting to God. This is a dirty word in our culture. I don't submit to anyone. And it's like, this isn't, this isn't like reaching my full potential. If I have to live like that, then I wouldn't be equal. And it gets all confused. This is a beautiful biblical concept. It is at the heart of Christ's response to the Father as he lived here on this earth and submitted to the ultimate of dying on the cross for you and me. 
So it's this idea of we willfully and gladly place ourselves under God's leadership and his authority, submit to God. Not just like some of the time, but all of the time. Not just like at the beginning when you go, okay, I'm trusting that Jesus Christ is the man. He lived and died for me. He rose again for me. My trust is in him. I did it. Now I'm going to go on on my own here. No, it's every day, all the time, every area of my life under him. Every area. So what has he been talking to? Well, submit your desires to God's desires. Submit your motivations. Submit your heart affections to him. And show that through a life of faith. Obeying his commands, believing his promises. Submit to God. I can't do that for you. And you can't do that for me. But let me just say something. For those who are listening and you're in a marriage that's conflicted right now, this is the secret sauce. This right here, submitting to God. What I've seen over the years as I've counseled people whose marriages were a wreck is the ones that made it, not got back to where they were, but got to a place they've never been. The ones who made it, both of them, committed themselves to submit wholly to God. And as they sought to please him, to honor him, to do what he's asking him to do, it has always moved them towards reconciliation. Job says this about submission. Job twenty two twenty one, Submit to God and you will have peace. Then things will go well for you. Submit to God. That's the mark, the fundamental first mark of a life that is humbly lived out before God. We submit to God. Then we resist the devil. We resist the devil, his temptation, his lies. We resist the temptation of these desires, of this motivation to live for myself and for my own pleasures, this, this idea that I could actually live my life in isolation from God. I, I resist that. I'm mindful that he seeks to destroy me like a roaring lion, his prey. I'm mindful. I don't have the resources. I need to to really depend upon, to put on the armor of God. I I realize that I could give the devil a foothold even in something as simple as I am really angry and I'm not resolving this anger and it's becoming that, a foothold. Or this unwillingness to forgive someone that hurt me, a foothold that drives me into this bad place where bitterness and anger and resentment marks my life. We resist the devil. We flee from sexual immorality. We refuse to slander, to judge other people. We're submitting, we're resisting, and then we're drawing near to God. And when he talks about drawing near to God, the language he doesn't use is, so get your Bible and have a quiet time. Nothing wrong. It's a good thing. But if you're in the word and if you're praying to God, but it's not real, it's not honest, you're not coming clean about who you are and your heart's need for his grace and for his mercy and forgiveness, then that isn't drawing near to God. Draw near to God with your heart, he says. Draw near with confession where you acknowledge what God already knows. And there's power in acknowledging what is wrong in our hearts to actually say it. There's a power over that. 
to be sorrowful, to be contrite, to be committed to a life of repentance, which is all about change. And so we're weeping and we're mourning and our laughter is moving to mourning, our joy to gloom because we're drawing near to God with an authentic heart. We're honest. But the proud person won't submit. Proud person is not going to resist temptation. The proud person isn't going to draw near to God. They're going to just, they're going to, just build all these kind of rationalizations to help them think and others think that I'm good with God. <laughs> hey, man, draw near. I'm already there. I don't need to draw near. I'm in a good place. Me and God are like this. That's proud. And so that's the cure. The grace of God that would form a humility in our life that would mark how we do life first with God. So submitting, resisting, drawing near, that's all about our vertical relationship. Now he begins to say, you know that one's right when it works out this way horizontally. This is, in a sense, the marks of those who have received the grace. They, they show the signs of being cured because they resist slander, they resist this proud boasting, and they resist this taking a pass on doing good and going, for whatever reason, I'm not going to do the good that I'm supposed to do. And he talks about that next, and we grab that whole section in verse 11 as he begins to describe the humility that flows from our life and relationship with God to each other. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver, that's God, and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So he says, there's no more slander. When would we slander? When would we judge people? Well, we can do it in a lot of places and a lot of times. But a common place that we're going to slander somebody is when they've done us wrong. When there's been conflict in the relationship and we're not moving towards them with grace and mercy in a way that is constructive and moves towards peacemaking and reconciliation. And so we're unwilling to work through it that way. And so what we do is, man, you really hurt me and I'm going to hurt you back and I'm going to trash you just like you trashed me. He says, no, 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 no. Person whose life is submitted, who's resisting and is drawing near to God, who has God's grace in and filling their life, not just going over their life. Uh, these people refuse to judge and to slander. They also refuse to boast proudly about the future. Verse 13 Now, listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even. Know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So this boasting part, he says, there's no boasting. What, what is this? It's not saying we don't make plans about the future, but we include God in our plans. And we don't get into this boasting about ourselves as we talk about the future and all that we are going to be able to succeed at. He says, look, you don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. I mean, just go back a couple days. 
They're just driving down the road and the pedestrian bridge. I mean, how many bridges have we driven under? And their life is over. The, the, the lady who's walking in her attic and the floorboards break and she falls through and this lady goes missing and then months later when they sell her house and the couple does renovation, they break into the wall and there she is in the cavity. Are you kidding me? He says, we, we, we don't know the future. We, we don't control the future. And don't forget who we are. We're just a vapor. We're just like, we're just a little dot. Eternity's the line. But we're living on this little dot. And so no more arrogant boasting. And no more passing up on the opportunities to do good. And look what he says specifically about that. In verse 1 of chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of, sl of slaughter. Go back to verse 17 of chapter 4. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. Verse 6 of chapter 5, you've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. And so, I mean, he, he, he's saying this, look, the heart's messed up. We got to get it right. We need more grace. We know what's right when it's right with God. We're submitting, we're resisting, we're drawing near. You know this is right when it starts working out this way. If this isn't right, if you're slandering and judging, this isn't right. If you're all about yourself and making yourself look big, instead of doing like Jesus and making yourself small and serving other, this isn't right. You're not connected to grace. You've missed that connection. You're still connected to your own heart's desires. Then he says, if, if you have an opportunity to do good and you take a pass on it, he said, this isn't right. God's grace moves us to a place of humbly living before him, humbly living with others in a way that we are actually generous towards them and how we think about them, how we speak to them and how we think about the resources that we have that actually could address the needs that they have. But he's not even talking about generosity here. He's just talking about a fair wage. You're not even paying a fair wage. So he, he gives us general accusation and he says, look, you guys, you are in big trouble you're heading right into God's judgment. You're not in a good place. Wake up. Listen to me now. And then he says, you're hoarders. Oh, my word. Now we're thinking about the show, and we're going, I do not want to be called a hoarder. That, that is so unhealthy. It is unhealthy. And he says, what's happening, because you are holding on to that which is not even yours but God's, 
You're not even paying a fair wage to the people who are planting your crops and bringing them in. He says, you're hoarders. And what happens here, the, the, the principle here is, is this. When we hoard our wealth, things rot. Our resources spoil because we're not investing them. And our hearts, it's almost like this selfishness, this doing life like this, mine, 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 more, more, more. Believing our desires that that'll make me happy, safe, and secure, and successful, and all the rest. He says, when that happens, it's like there's a little implanting of a cancer cell that begins to grow and multiply, and it ruins us. Your wealth is corroding, and your hearts are corroding. He goes from the general, you're a hoarder, to the specific, you're cheating. The very people that you've hired to do the work. You could, you've got the resources, but you refuse to do that. Maybe you think that, you know, it's your money and you get to decide what you do. Maybe you decided that, you know what, you need it more than they do. Maybe you decided they're lazy and they really haven't worked that hard for it. And so I'm not going to pay them what I said I was going to pay them. Now, here's, here's the thing. When we get to this section and he says, look at it again. Verse 5, now listen, you rich people. Everybody's going, yeah, who's he talking about? It's not me. Oh, yeah, that person's pretty rich. Have you noticed that we always compare our wealth with people who make more than us? I guarantee you this. I guarantee you if I took you to any of our national or global partnerships in South Dakota, Pine Ridge, Indian Reservation, the poorest zip code in the country, the heart of New Orleans, where John is right now with a team in Rwanda, down in Haiti, where I was just this last fall, Honduras. You would come back and you'd walk in the front door of your dorm, of your apartment, of your condo, of your house. You'd look around and you'd see all that you have. You'd go to the store and you'd go, oh my word, you would easily conclude, I'm rich. That's really hard to say. Let me prove it. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm rich. It's just, it just feels weird to say it. It just feels weird. Well, wake up. We're rich. Friends, we're rich. This is a warning not for people 2,000 years ago. This is a warning for Door Creek Church. This is a warning for the church in America. This is why churches around the world pray for us because they see materialism and the lure of materialism and the pleasures of this world to be the very thing that Jesus talks about that would choke off our faith and the word's power in our lives. And so I think about the people we hire out, the students that mow our lawn, the person who watches our pets, our house, paints, cleans. And I wonder how we treat that. I wonder how we tip. Man, if they see you pray, it better be a big one. And here's the thing that happens. Because we are so good at this God talk. Like we ran into where the person runs into the person who doesn't have food and doesn't have clothing, but man, they got God talk. God bless you. Be well fed and be warm. That is so messed up. And it's so messed up to start going, man, I'm just trying to be a good steward. 
And don't ever confuse Scrooge-like frugality for good stewardship. Actually, that's just another face of greed. You ever thought about that? And some of us, we're just, we're just wired to be generous. God bless you. You will, you will never go to the grave going, man, I wish I wasn't so generous. <laughs> but, but if you're Scrooge-like, I guarantee you, there won't be too many people around your grave. Don't confuse Scrooge-like frugality for a life of faith that seizes the opportunity to not just pay the fair wage, but to be generous with all that God has entrusted to us, trusting him, not what's left in the bank. We need to be generous to those who have less than us. So easy for us to start slandering people and groups. And you know what happens is we just hang out with people, you know, that come from our economic background, our education background. And the problem is we don't know enough of the stories, and I love that about our church, that not only do we not desire to be a white suburban church, but we're not even though it kind of looks like it a lot. No. So, when we actually hear people's stories, it changes things. When Marcus called me up this last week, Marcus and Roshana were homeless. We helped them get an apartment here. They got back on their feet. Over time, five kids moved to Iowa the job he was promised kind of fell through, got another job. He's working hard to support his family. Moves back to Illinois, to Rockford area. He calls me this, this last year. He says, man, I'm in a really tough spot. So Marcus is making 10 to 12 bucks an hour, which is almost five bucks over minimum wage. And he's scratching and clawing to just support his family. Thankfully, he could qualify for some assistance with food and housing. And one of the things that happened this last year is the woman that oversees his housing that he has access to says, Marcus, you're making too much money. You can't live in the apartment anymore. So he tells me this. He said, I had to quit my job. And I'm going, oh, no, you didn't quit your job. He says, man, I just, you know, I've lived on the streets already. I, I can't put my five kids and my wife out on the streets. I've got to put a roof over their heads. If, if, we, if we're not close to those kinds of people, we, we have it all figured out in our minds. Why these people? And do people take advantage of the, Absolutely. On every side of the economic strata, people take advantage. This isn't about politics. That this isn't about socialism, this isn't about capitalism, this isn't about communism. This is about right living in the kingdom of God and as kids of the king. So listen to this. You've heard of minimum wage, right? Do you know what it is here in the state? Is it seven a quarter, seven fifteen, something like that? It's low sevens, all right? That's our state. Do you know there's a, called a poverty wage? That's what you're making with government assistance. And they put that by an hour. Do you know MIT made lots of headway in study. There's actually a living wage, what it actually costs to live for a person in a specific community. 
It's not, it's not like, oh, it's all dressed up. Man, you get vacations. There are no vacations in a living wage. There's no savings plan. There's no retirement plan. There's no movie money and fun money. It's just the basic essentials. That's living wage. Poverty, minimum wage, living wage. So listen to this. A single mom with two kids in Dane County needs to work 139 hours a week at minimum wage to get at the living wage. And it's just for so many of us, it's just not in our worldview. We don't understand it. And he's saying, look, if we are people that are living humbly before God, then we're not passing on the opportunity to do right by the people that we've employed and by the people he's made the case all along since chapter 2 that are in great need, that are right here in our relational sphere. God help us. So what are we going to do? Well, we better not go home and get puddle-focused. Not going to help. There's no hope. One of the reasons you go, we just keep hitting the wall. We just keep hitting the wall in our marriage is we've been, we've been focusing on the wrong thing. We've been asking the wrong questions. It's really good for us to go back now and analyze what has been driving my heart through this conflict what have I been pursuing to make me happy? What did I think that I need? And now to go, and God, what actually do you want? You start asking that question, and you drive yourself to the mercy and grace of God so you don't miss it, because there isn't any way where you're flatline dead marriage. There isn't any way but the bestie who's no longer now the worstie, right? There isn't any way that's ever going to come together apart from God's grace. And that's what God does. And that's what he's doing. He's bringing together all things to himself, to their rightful place through Christ. That's the more grace that we need, more of Christ, the one who always submitted, the one who always resisted, the one who was always drawing near, the one who always wanted the Father's will, not his own desires. We need more of Christ. We need more of Christ. And that is our hope in our family, in our marriages, in the workplace. It's more of Christ. And we have an opportunity to bring Christ to the table as we become conduits of his grace. So I can't wait for you in your life groups this week to dig in, to really get after chapter 5 and the hard words for those of us who are rich, which I just said is all of us. I'm really excited for you to think through conflict that you're in right now, and get God's mind and get your heart connected. And I, I want you to just imagine what one day will be, a world without conflict. Just imagine what it would be like. I mean, just think about how much time and energy and resources are spent around international conflict and personal conflicts and everything in between. This is where history is going by the grace of God. And until that day, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the humble. God will lift you up. He'll give you peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bless you for this hard word that reveals 
that we've got just messed up hearts and we may not even be aware of the battle that's going on. And so thank you for showing us what we didn't see. And thank you for giving us more grace for what we desperately need because it's just our proclivity to want the wrong things. Lord, thank you for your spirit that reminds us who's actually given us desires to submit, to resist, to draw near. Grow that in us, Lord. And help us to get it right as we live with each other. Lord, cut out the slanderous tones of our hearts and our mouths. Cut out these arrogant, boastful predictions and plans. Lord, cut out these sins of omission when we just take a pass and think somebody else can deal with that. Make us generous. Make us gracious. Make us merciful that this world that so desperately needs you would know more about you because they've run into us. They've run into this church, these people here. They're doing life according to the fundamental question of what pleases you, Lord. Help us, we pray in Christ's name, for your glory. Amen.